too, writes, the chief came to see me, and said that he wished to be a Christian, that he knew he must die some day, but he had been told of the new life into which Christians entered after death, and that he also would like to enter that life. Shall I cut your hair? asked the bishop. This strange question was understood perfectly well by the chief. It meant that he must cut off the bad old habit of going on the warpath. No, I cannot allow you to cut my hair, he answered, reluctantly, for he was not ready to give up going on the warpath. Well, you cannot become a Christian unless you cut your hair, said the bishop, sorrowfully. The chief went away, but he still attended the services which the bishop held, and after some months came again to the bishop. I want to be sure of that life after death, he said. Please make me a Christian. Shall I cut your hair? Asked the bishop again. Yes, do whatever you like with me so long as you make me a Christian, answered the chief. Thus the chief eventually became a Christian, and many of his tribe followed his example. The naughty kittens. Look at old puss. The kittens said, he's fast asleep. He nods his head. How dull and stupid it must be to be as slow and old as he. He lies and sleeps there in the sun, and does not try to play or run creep up and gives him just a pat he ought to run, he gets so fat, but puss awoke, hello, said he, you think to play your tricks on me, I know I'm old, I'm glad I'm fat my dear, kind mistress sees to that, I scare the birds while lying here they dare not come when I am near, to steal my mistress's nice fruit, my time to some good use is put, but you, what have you done today, except to romp and run and play, the kittens, looking quite subdued, said, we are sorry we were a rude, well then, this time I let you go, old puss replied, for now you know that older folk are wiser far than silly little kittens are, with this remark puss walked away and left the kittens to their play, I'm glad to say they ne'er forgot the lesson that they had been taught, and from that day tried hard to be from naughty, idle ways quite free, in fact they now behave so well that I have nothing more to tell, cd be the best lesson, a good man once had a serious illness, during which his life was several times despaired of. On his becoming convalescent, a friend said to him, It will be a long time before you are able to collect your thoughts to preach again, or to think of material for your sermons. You are mistaken, friend, was the answer. This illness has taught me more than all the books and learning I have studied in the whole of my life before. He had been not far from death, and had learned more fully than any books could teach him that there is something greater than mere human wisdom. A monkey's memory. A French lady on one occasion saw an organ grinder real treating his monkey. She was moved with pity, and bought it. It became her chief pet, and used to follow her about everywhere. Once she invited a party of guests to a concert. The monkey was allowed to watch, but instead of staying where she had put it, it took the head of one of the guests, and made a collection, much to the delight of the audience and then emptied the contents into the player's lap. It had not forgotten its old habits. The boy tramp, continued from page 7, chapter I.I. Jack, said Captain Dalton, who had come to see me at Castlemore for a few hours, I have brought some news. Your aunt is going to be married. Aunt Marion, I cried. You haven't another aunt, have you? He asked. Mumber of course not. I answered, but I thought she was too old. Anyhow, he said. She is going to marry Major Rustin, and in about a month I shall come to fetch you to the wedding. But, I asked, what shall I do in the holidays? We must manage as best we can, he answered. 
you understand that I have taken you entirely off her hands, in the future you must look to me, will you object to that, I shall like it immensely, I said, and the following morning Mrs. Windlesham helped me to compose a suitable letter of congratulation to Aunt Marion, in due course Captain Dalton came, according to his promise, to take me to the wedding, and we were driven direct from the London terminus to his own rooms in the Albany, where I made the acquaintance of Rogers, his servant, a pleasant-looking man, about twenty-seven years of age, who seemed always to wear a blue serge suit. Rogers took me to the Hippodrome that evening, and the next afternoon to a house at South Kensington, where I found Aunt Marion looking younger and more smartly dressed than I had ever seen her before. Did Captain Dalton tell you the news? she asked. When I had sat by her side for a few moments, I was surprised. I exclaimed, I am sure I don't know why. She answered, with a peculiar kind of laugh. Is Major Ruston here? I asked. Mumber she said, you won't see him until Captain Dalton brings you to the church tomorrow. It is to be a very quiet wedding, and we shall start for India the next day. When Rogers returned to fetch me an hour later, Aunt Marion put her arms around my neck and kissed me a great many times, telling me to be good, and try in every way to please Captain Dalton advice which I considered very unnecessary. After the wedding ceremony the following day, we went to an hotel, where the four of us had luncheon, and, later on, Captain Dalton stood on the pavement without his hat, and took a white satin slipper from his pocket, throwing it after the carriages Major and Mrs. Ruston were driven away. I don't think much of Major Ruston, I remarked as I walked to the Albany with Captain Dalton. What is the matter with him? He is too fat, and his face is too red, I answered, whereupon he laughed. After Rogers had cleared the table that evening, and brought two cups of coffee, and Captain Dalton had lighted a cigar, Jack, he said, how old are you by this time? Turn fourteen, I replied, ah, a grand age, isn't it? He exclaimed. I was talking about you to Windlesham. He gave you a pretty good character on the whole. I am glad of that, I said, for although I had never thought much about my character hitherto, it seemed desirable to possess a good one, if only to please Captain Dalton, a bit mischievous, he continued, and rather headstrong, inclined to act too much on the impulse of the moment. It is time you set to work in earnest, you know, Jack. You will have to look sharp if you wish to go to Sandhurst. That is just what I should like, I cried, with a great deal of excitement, that is all right then, you are quite old enough to understand things, I feel certain your father would have liked you to enter the army, now, he added, I am afraid you will have to spend the next holidays at Castlemore, I have one or two engagements which cannot very well be put off, and unfortunately there is nobody in the world who can be said to belong to you, I looked up abruptly, well, he asked, Oh nothing, I muttered, come, out with it, Jack, there is you, I said, and he leaned forward, resting a hand on my knee, quite right, he answered, I want you to feel you have me, understand, Jack, yes, I cried, and suddenly I seemed to realize what a bad thing it would be if I had not Captain Dalton to depend upon, the next day I returned to Ascot House, naturally disappointed at the prospect of spending the holiday at school. The other fellows all went home at the end of March, and about a week later I was surprised when Elsie Windlesham, the eldest of the five girls, told me that Captain Dalton was waiting in the drawing room, 
but my satisfaction faded when he explained that he was going abroad for some months, and that he had come to say goodbye. The fact is I have not been up to the mark, he continued, so I have bought a small steam yacht. What is her name? I interrupted, the seagull a jolly little craft, and I hope to make a voyage round the world in her. I shall get back again before the summer holidays, and then we will have a good time together. I have had a chat with Mr. Windlesham, said Captain Dalton, and told him to keep you well supplied with pocket money and so forth. You will be a good chap, he added, and work hard for Sandhurst, as he would probably be absent on my 15th birthday. He had brought a silver watch and chain, which certainly went some way towards consoling me for his departure. So I said goodbye to Captain Dalton, little dreaming of what was destined to occur to both of us in the near future. For now events began to happen quickly one on the top of another, and it was less than a fortnight after Captain Dalton's departure that Elsie told me, as a great secret, that her father had been offered a lucrative living in the north of England. But, I asked, how about the school? That is why he has gone to London today, she explained. He wants to sell the school before next term begins, and he has heard of somebody who will very likely buy it. A few days later, Mr. Turton appeared on the scene, accompanied by his wife and his only son, Augustus. Mr. Turton was not a clergyman, although he dressed a little like one, he was short, rather stout, with a pale face and an untidy dark beard, but his wife was tall and lean, and her face looked gaunt and pinched, while, as for Augustus, it was difficult to judge whether he ought to be described as a boy or a man, taller than Mr. Turton. He had a long, thin face like his mother's, and a growth of fair down upon his chin. With a boy's jacket he wore a very high stand-up collar, while his hair sadly needed cutting. I shook hands with the three in turn, and as I tried to think of something to say to the painfully bashful Augustus, I overheard a remark of Mr. Windlesham's which led me to believe I was being spoken of as an important source of revenue. The result of Mr. Turton's visit was that the holidays were lengthened for eight days, to allow the Windlesham's to move away and their successors to take possession of Ascot House. I learned from Elsie that the furniture had been bought as it stood, and that Mr. Bosenkit the assistant master, and a thoroughly good fellow was to stay on for one term, after which Augustus would take his place. I have felt a little at a loss, said Mr. Windlesham, the day before his departure, all the other boys are returning, but in your case I have been compelled to take Captain Dalton's approval for granted, however, I have explained all the circumstances to Mr. Turton, and I have no doubt you will be very happy and comfortable, still, I had certain doubts, and, in fact, after I had reluctantly said goodbye to Mr. and Mrs. Windlesham, and to Elsie and her sisters, and the fellows came back from the holidays, a change was at once perceptible, perhaps, in some ways, an impartial observer might have regarded it as a change for the better, everything was conducted in a far more orderly manner, we rose an hour earlier in the morning, and went to bed half an hour earlier at night, we had the same kind of meat every weekday in regular rotation, and less of it, our bread was cut thicker, and spread with less butter, we were no longer permitted to wander about the small town at our own sweet wills. It became necessary to ask leave before we spent any money, and although Augustus shared for the present our lessons with Mr. Bosenkit, he acted as a kind of tyrannical overseer during the rest of the day. One morning in June, about two months after Captain Dalton's departure from England, 
I was summoned to Mr. Turton's study, and I found him with a more than usually grave face. Everard, he said, you must be prepared for the most serious news. Not about Captain Dalton, I cried, for it seemed that there was really no one else in the world for whom I very much cared. What was the name of his vessel? Asked Mr. Turton. The seal. You don't mean that she has been wrecked? I faltered. Unfortunately, that is the fact, was the answer. Turning aside, I leaned against the door with my face buried in my sleeve. Mr. Turton spoke kindly, as did Mrs. Turton in her rather cold and sympathetic way, but nothing that anyone could say made the slightest difference. I felt that I had lost my best and, indeed, my only friend, continued on page 22, a hundred years ago. True Tales of the Year 1805 I in the Pillory One summer's day in the year 1805, a farmer's wife, carrying a heavy basket of eggs, was slowly trudging along a lane leading to the market town, when a woman ran hastily to her, calling out as she passed, You are in luck today, Mrs. Hodge. Eggs are so scarce that you can ask any price you like. Why is that? asked Mrs. Hodge, surprised. Why? laughed the woman because everyone wants them. A man has just been put in the pillory for speaking against the king, or the parliament. I don't rightly know which, but at any rate he is safe in the pillory, and folk are having rare fun pelting him. And the woman passed on to join in what she called the fun. Mrs. Hodge, however, was a woman of a different sort. I will sell none of my eggs for such cruel work as that, she said resolutely. Sooner, by far, would I take the whole lot back and sold that I would, then ill treat an unfortunate man in that way. She had now reached the marketplace, and there, on a platform raised several feet above the ground, stood a wide wooden post, with three round holes in it, through which appeared a man's head and his two hands, thus imprisoned and utterly unable to protect himself in any way. He furnished sport for a thoughtless, cruel mob, who were aiming at him with rotten eggs, cabbage stalks, and any rubbish that came to hand. Mrs. Hodge's blood boiled with indignation as she saw the terror and agony in the poor man's eyes, as missile after missile hit him, each hit being greeted with a shout of delight from the populace. Shame on you, cried the honest woman, and hastily leaving her basket at a shop door, she somehow pushed her way through the masses, and climbing the platform, stood right in front of the pillory. Shame on you all, to hit a helpless man, she cried again. Get down, get down shouted the mob, furious at anyone interfering with their fun, get down, or we will treat you the same, more shame to you, said the dauntless woman, I shall not leave for all your threats, surely there will be one amongst you all who will not see a helpless man tortured, but he is a bad man, he was trying to set folk against the government, he deserves to be punished, was shouted by different voices in the crowd, if he has done wrong he is being punished for it said the woman firmly, still continuing to shelter the man by standing before him. It is bad enough for him to stand all day in the pillory under this broiling sundown without having his eyes blinded and his nose broken. We shall all, maybe, want a friend one day. So let us help this poor fellow now. Here, Ralph, she continued, catching the eye of the chief leader of the riding. You said, when I saved you from bleeding to death in the hayfield last summer, that you owed me a good turn. Pay it me now. Leave this poor fellow alone, and get your friends to do the same. The man stood irresolute one minute, then his feeling of gratitude conquered him, and he said, 
half sheepishly, have your own way, mother, I will see that no one throws any more at him, that is right, Ralph, said Mrs. Hodge, heartily, for she knew that Ralph's influence was great, now for a pail of fresh water, and let me see if I cannot get all this dirt off this poor fellow's face and hair, thank you, Mrs., you have been real good to me, the man said, hoarsely, I could never have stood it much longer, the mob fickle as mobs so often are were now as ready to help as before to injure, and instead of jeering and reviling, there were now those who remarked that perhaps the chap was no worse than the rest of us, whilst others were glad they had been stopped in time, for only a few weeks before a man had been killed, whilst standing in the pillory, by those who were only amusing themselves in much the same fashion as folk on that day, one of the crowd fetched water, and a woman brought a mug of milk, which was sweet as nectar to the poor man's parched throat, and now, though he had still many hours before sundown to stand in the pillory, yet it was shorn of its chief terror, as Ralph undertook to shield him from all further injury, so he once more thanked Mrs. Hodge, and she returned to her eggs with a mind at ease, it may surprise our readers to know that the punishment of the pillory remained on the statute book of this country until the year 1837, Though it had practically fallen into disuse for many years before it was repealed, the pillory came down to us from Anglo-Saxon times, and there was a law passed in the reign of Henry III, ordering every village to set up a pillory when required for bakers who used false weights, perjurers, and so on. Clarendon, nothing is perfect. An Italian artist had painted a little girl holding a basket of strawberries. One of his friends, who was at the time a great admirer of his genius, wishing to show the perfection of the picture, said to some people who were looking at it, these strawberries are so very natural and perfect, that I have seen birds coming down from the trees to peck them, mistaking them for real strawberries, a countryman, on hearing this ridiculous praise, burst out laughing, well, sir, he cried, if the strawberries are so well represented as you say they are, it must not be the same with the little girl, since she does not frighten the birds, the painter's friend could answer nothing, he had received a well-deserved rebuke for his flattery, moral, excessive praise wrongs rather than benefits the person upon whom it is bestowed, W.R. Wood, wonderful caverns, ion caverns in general, long ago, in the dark ages of the world, when superstitious terrors ruled the mind of savage man, caverns were looked upon with awe and peopled with supernatural beings, the mysterious waters that issued from some, the depth and length of the winding ways of others, the unaccountable sounds that echoed through the vaults and galleries of all, gave rise to wonderful legends in many parts of the world, beneath the holy peak of Kailas, supposed to be the center of the Hindu universe, are caverns in which, according to legend, lie the four sacred animals, the elephant, the lion, the cow, and the horse, from whose mouths issue the four great rivers of India, the Gangs, Sutlej, Indus, and Brahmaputra, according to Scandinavian mythology, Loke, the incarnation of evil, was for a long time bound to points of rock in a cavern, with a huge serpent crouching above and spitting venom on the prisoner, Hastrand, the nether world of the Vikings, was also depicted as a cavern of colossal size, furnished with poisonous serpents and unlimited sources of torture for mind and body, the Greeks held caverns to be sacred to various gods Pan, Bacchus, Pluto, and the moon, the Romans peopled them with sibyls, or priestesses of fate, and beautiful nymphs, whilst in ancient Germany and Gaul, 
fairies, dragons, and evil spirits shared the gloomy recesses which no mortal might invade and live. In the Middle Ages there were many legends of evil spirits dwelling in caves, who beguiled human beings to their rocky homes, whence the visitors never returned. Probably the truth of this particular fable lay in the growing spirit of exploration into the recesses of nature, the dangers of which ill provided with light, ropes, and modern means of security as they were or must have been extreme. About this era, too, the forests of northern Europe were largely thinned, and fairies, dwarfs, and such folk, it was thought, were obliged to take refuge in caverns and grottos. Within the last hundred years a legend was common in the Hartz Mountains, that if a wedding feast lacked copper or brass kettles, cooking pans, or plates, the needs would be supplied on invoking the dwarfs at the entry of their rocky homes. No payment was asked for or expected, but a little meat left in the pans on their return was appreciated and might lead to future civilities. Moorish children are still brought up to believe that Moabdil, the last king of Granada, with his mighty host, is still sleeping in a huge cavern, whence he will someday issue to a last great victory over the Christians. So far we have seen only the imaginative ideas of these great hollows of the earth, for hollow is the true meaning of the Latin word cavia, from which cave or cavern is derived. Now we will glance at the more practical purposes to which the smaller and more superficial caves have been adapted. With the dawn of Christianity, many men and women, shocked at the excesses of Greek and Roman civilization, retired from the world and led simple lives as hermits in remote caves. To this day, the hermit's cave is a common name in England, and, though it is not always a genuine one, it usually denotes that in olden times some hermit or anchorite passed his lonely existence in the spot in question, long before this era, in Hindustan. Advantage had been taken of natural caverns to hew into shape the marvelous rock temples of Elephantus, Elora, and Ajanta, still accounted as amongst the wonders of the world. In New Mexico and Arizona in remote ages whole tribes lived in caves, some natural, but more often made habitable by the aid of masonry. Most of these are high up on shelves edging precipitous cliffs, and were clearly chosen as places of refuge from enemies of the plain. All over Europe caves are found containing bones of human beings, most of which are recognized by scientists to belong to an earlier race, who made use of these homes provided by nature, both for abiding places during life and resting places for the dead. In many of these caves, sketches on bone, horn, and ivory have been found, remarkable for their clear and vigorous drawing at a time when art was an unknown quantity. It is noticeable that drawings found amongst the Eskimo relics depict seals, whales, and walruses, whilst those of more southern races show mammoths, wild horses, and bisons, the only animals drawn by both being the reindeer. Numerous caves in Britain, and indeed all over the world, contain bones of animals, and from classifying these, learned folk have found out a great deal respecting the geological and geographical changes which have taken place on the crust of the earth since the creation. Now that we have thought of the terrors with which caverns inspired our remote forefathers, as well as of the practical uses to which they have been put by less imaginative men and animals, let us try to see how and why these mighty hollows came to exist at all. Earthquakes are often accountable for rocks heaped in wild confusion, leaving great chasms below. Volcanic agency also deposits huge roofs of lava over tracts of ice and snow, and the melting of the latter leaves empty spaces of vast extent. The neighborhood of Mount Etna, in Sicily, has various wonderful caverns of this formation, 
Landslips and rock falls on the surface account for many small grottoes, but water is the main origin of all the most celebrated caverns of the world. Underground streams and rivers gradually eat their way along the surface of their rocky flooring. The carbonic acid in the water acting chemically on the stone in addition to the wearing force of the element. Once a shallow channel is worn, new forces set to work to deepen it, sand, pebbles and grit of all kinds, washed down by the current, grind and wear away the rock. In course of time great depths are hollowed out, and if it happens that some obstacle turns the course of the water, and the river finds a new outlet, a long deep gallery is left dry, and here and there an apparently bottomless pit where the water has acted on specially soft stone, from above, also. A steady action of moisture has been eating away the cliff, adding height to the cavern, as well as coating its roof and sides with a sparkling substance derived from the union of water and particles of the limestone, in which caves usually abound. Nothing can be more beautiful, when illuminated, than a roof of stalactites, with ascending pillars of stalagmite often meeting and forming pillars, like those which will be later on described in the Mammoth Cave and others. The building of these very grottoes is really a simple matter, but one only possible to the great architect to whom a thousand years are as one day, for a very little bit of one of those stony icicles would take hundreds of years in formation. Water flowing above a cave is certain to contain carbonic acid, some given to it by the atmosphere, and some imparted from decaying vegetation. This water oozes slowly through the rock, and the carbonic acid in passing dissolves a mite of lime, carrying it through the roof to which the lime adheres whilst the water evaporates, drop follows drop, each tiny particle sliding down its fellow, until, as weeks and years and centuries roll by, a lovely long pendant is formed, known as a stalactite, sometimes the drops of acidulated watery lime fall through the roof by an easier passage, and fall right onto the floor of the cavern, when an upward process takes place, each drop exactly striking the one before, until one of the stately columns arises known as a stalagmite, Helena Heath, an ocean policeman, amid a flutter of flags and the cheers of onlookers, the ocean policeman, HMS Speedy, first took to the water on May 18, 1893, its birthplace was the banks of the Thames at Chiswick, but hardly had it settled itself on the smooth surface of the river when orders came from official quarters that it should proceed at once to school, they were no easy lessons that it had to learn, and the subsequent examinations were extremely difficult and trying, for they were conducted by a large crowd of the most learned gentlemen in England and the continent connected with naval matters. The school was at Sheerness, and here the Speedy spent four months in preparation. On September 28th the first run was made, and three weeks later the examiners were delighted to find that this splendid new boat was able to steam at a speed of 20 knots an hour. Everything the inventor and designer had claimed for her was proving true. The new style of tubing in the boilers made it possible to get up steam very quickly after the fires were lighted, so that when the order came to start there was no no. Wait a minute, please, I am not quite ready. The engines, 4,500 horsepower in strength, did their work far more nimbly than those in any previous gunboat of the same size. The vessel is 230 feet long and can steam triumphantly through water no more than 10 feet deep. That in itself is enough to terrify evildoers who would otherwise hope to escape by getting into shallow water beyond her reach. But in addition, she carries two large guns and a searchlight. Having thoroughly satisfied the examiners, this huge scholar soon had the honor of receiving a commission, 
and is now on duty in the North Sea among the brown-sailed fishing smacks. Like a gigantic duck watching over her ducklings, there are several gunboats of the British Navy employed in the same way, but few of them quite so modern as the Speedy, or so capable of guarding the interests of the fishermen. Any foreign smack or lugger that comes within three miles of the English coast is trespassing, and is immediately called upon by the Speedy to give an explanation. If the trespasser hesitates, a boat is lowered from the steamer with an officer on board to make inquiries, and should the answers to his questions be unsatisfactory, the stranger and his boat are sent prisoners to the nearest English port. Thus, up and down among the great fleet of peaceful fishers, the speedy plies all day, and even in the darkest night her watching is as keen and sure, for then her searchlight, a dazzling beam, sweeps over the sea in all directions, and not the tiniest rowboat could escape unseen. Many a time it has revealed some stealthy marauder who hoped, under the cover of darkness, to pull in a net of fish from these forbidden waters and then sail into some French or Dutch port and detected, all chance of escape, however, is over when once that dazzling light falls upon the dishonest craft, and who would begrudge such protection to our fishermen, their busy fleets are floating towns of industry, in which some 33,000 men and boys are employed. In 1901 their harvest represented 8,647,805 weight of fish, and realized 6,848,192 pounds in money. A very large portion of this came from the North Sea, but such treasury is only secured at great danger and with loss of life. In this same year 1901, over 300 fishermen were drowned, some in wrecks and collisions, some in missing barks and many by being dragged overboard by the cumbersome fishing gear, at all hours of the day and night, at all seasons of the year, these perilous laborers are carried on, and when we think of this, is it not some gratification to know that the rights and privileges of our fishermen are jealously guarded by such stalwart ocean policemen as the Speedy, John Lee, waiting, in London town the streets are gay, and crowds go quickly by, it is a glorious summer day, but I sit here inside, the pavement's hot, my feet are sore, yet I must wait outside the door, I cannot bear to sit out here, but I am tied up fast, I saw my master disappear, but I could not get past, no dogs allowed inside this shop they said, so here I have to stop, ah, here the island and off we go, tis jolly to be free, I bark, and do my best to show, as he caresses me, how much I love him, for to part from him I know would break my heart, See thee be the frog and the geese, two wild geese, when about to start southwards for the winter, were entreated by a frog to take him with them, on the geese consenting to do so if a means of carrying him could be found, the frog produced a stalk of long grass, got the two geese to take it one by each end, while he clung to it in the middle by his mouth, in this manner the three were making their journey, when they were noticed by some men, who loudly expressed their ADM,